Welcome back to another Yak Podcast, where we are continuing our series on apologetics, and I'm so excited this week to be discussing the formation of the canon. This is one of the longer lessons we've ever done, uh, but I think it's important, and a lot of different topics were hit. So I hope you get uh, a lot out of it. Uh, Enjoy. Because you're ignorant, not necessarily you, but teenagers and most adults too, because they're ignorant, they assume that scripture was written like this. You know, John's sitting in a room all by his lonesome. He's got a cup of water. He's about to write in his journal, dear diary. And then he's controlled. His eyes roll in the back of his head and he pens the letter of John. Okay? There's this idea that scripture was given to us in this supernatural way. Um, We're not uh, uh, Latter-day Saints. We don't believe that a golden tablet was given to a guy and then was interpreted through a hat with a crystal ball in it. I'm not kidding. Um, We don't believe that. Um, We believe the Bible was given to us through historical means. Um, So how do we defend that? Um, How do we know that the book we have is the book that we're supposed to have? It's an important question. Um, It's a real important question. Um, So, uh, because if you don't know, then when people present objections or you turn on the history channel around Easter time uh, for one minute, uh, people are going to throw questions that you might not have answers to. So this is important for you to know. Okay? Okay. So, um, let me pray and then we'll get going. Okay? Lord Jesus, I ask that you give us clarity tonight um, as we dive into this important subject, uh, that you give us the opportunity um, to learn more about uh, how our Bible came into existence so we can defend it and answer questions uh, for those that uh, struggle with this concept um, and we can uh, hopefully lead them to uh, the challenge them to actually open it and read what it has to say. In your son's name, amen. Okay, the history lesson. I love this because uh, I'm a former history teacher. So Jesus died, 33 A.D. And then the disciples got together. They smoked a lot of drugs. And then they decided that Jesus had risen from the dead. One big hallucination that lasted for the next 10 years. And then they went, that was the craziest trip ever, Paul. Whoa, when did you get here? Okay? And then they're like, let's write some books. They'll be bestsellers. And so they wrote books. And then Rome killed them all. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, but unfortunately, it's not as ridiculous as some stories postulated in books and media today. If you read the Dan Brown novels for one minute, um, you'll know that Mary Magdalene had Jesus' children. And they went to France. And that's what the monarchs are from. I'm serious. And I've met people who are like, I'm, I agree with Dan Brown. And I'm like, I agree with George Lucas. You're out of your mind. Okay? Um, so you have these issues that we need to understand fully or grasp fully. Um, so while that sounds great, or the story sounds great and fanciful, it doesn't line up with the information. And that's what's important. 
The reason we are covering this topic tonight is because for the past few decades, an assault has been launched against the Bible, which asks the questions, how do we know we have the correct books of the Bible? How do we know we have the correct books of the Bible? How do we know that we have an accurate breakdown of who Jesus is? Well, asking those questions is not a bad thing. Let me make that clear. Those questions are not bad questions. They ask the question and then respond with it with answers that aren't grounded in history. That they read documents that way, the way they shouldn't be read and make assumptions about the supernatural that immediately eliminate specific options. I'm going to break down the history of the early church and how it led to the formation of the canon tonight. That I am going to answer some appropriate questions that you might come across in your discussions with friends. But first, let me give you a broad timeline before we jump into the small moments I want you to see it all. So I used to say this with my history students all the time. We're going to look at the constellation, and then we're going to look at some individual stars and see how those all fit together. So I want you to see Leo first. I want you to see Pisces. I want you to see these things in the sky so that when we look at the individual stars, you can see how they all line up together. The first date that I want you to be aware of is 33 A.D. to 100 A.D. And this is known as the Apostolic Period. It's on your sheet, the Apostolic Period. Now when I say that, so Apostolic, (laughs) some of you might not understand that word. Uh, Zach, Apostolic, where do you think that's referring to? You're going to go, oh, when you realize it, but... You're proving my point, that most people don't know what apostolic means. It's fine. So when I say apostolic Christian, who is that Christian? Christen, who is that referring to? The apostles. So we're talking about the people who hung out with Jesus. The apostles, John, James, uh, Paul, all those guys. It's the apostolic period. We're not saying that all of them lived up to 100 AD. Okay, we know Paul uh, died around, I think it was 65 64, 65. It was the same in the year Nero died. Nero died three months later. Okay? But we think John lived up to about 100 AD. Okay? So the Apostle John lived up to about 100 AD. Okay? He was one of the youngest disciples when he was hanging out with Jesus, um, which points to his longer lifespan. Um, we get that number from apostolic tradition. Um, it seems like everyone believed that John was surviving up to about 100 years old in Ephesus. Okay? So that's the apostolic age. The next age is 100 AD to 150 AD. And this is the post-apostolic. So, Zach, after the apostles. Okay? That makes perfect sense. I know. Brilliant. Okay? Also known as the Age of the Church Fathers, which was the name of their worship band. Okay? So you have the Church Fathers, post-apostolic. These are the guys that hung out with the guys that hung out with Jesus. Irenaeus, Polycarp, Origen, these guys are the ones that hung out with John and Paul and Matthew and Dr. Luke and all those guys. So they're like the students... Of those people. So they, they know firsthand accounts kind of what happened. Um, it'd be like you sitting in your room with your grandfather and your grandfather telling you stories uh, for you guys, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, something they went through. They're hearing firsthand accounts from what's happened. 
Okay? And they're dealing with the texts of the apostles. Okay? The next is 150 AD to 300 AD. And this is the time of the apologists. Apologists. So apologetics, same basic. They actually named their time after this class. True story. Okay. So apologists. During the previous two periods, Christianity was still growing. Yes, quickly, but it hadn't established itself as something outside of a Jewish sect. That's what it was still known at this period. By the time of the apologists, it was large enough where people on the inside and critics on the outside were beginning to ask questions. So leaders needed to respond to them. Hence, apologists or defenders of the faith. Finally, they're big enough where we need to answer them. Okay? They carry a big enough stick. Okay, how do we deal with them? Next is the one that gets the most press. 380 to 600 AD. And this is the time of the theologians. <laughs> so guess what? They're not killing Christians anymore. It's nice. Okay? Actually, some of them are in power. Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity. Uh, now that people aren't trying to kill them as regularly, they can travel abroad and make sure that the church is uniform in its teaching. And by this period, period we have the canon of Scripture formed. Okay? So by here, we have the canon of Scripture formed. So let's go back. Let's, let's look at each star in the constellation. So the immediate post-apostolic period, let me make the first thing clear when it comes to this. And this is one of your fill in the blank. Doctrines do not rise on their own. Doctrines do not rise on their own. They're not a piece of bread that you put in, you know, an oven and it rises out of yeast. Okay? They do not rise on their own. They are formed when there are questions for members of the church or there are challenges from outside it. Okay? That's how you discover everything in your world. Okay? If you have a question you can't answer in a history textbook, you have a question and you go back and you think about it and you make an opinion on it. If you have a question for a math test, okay, then you have to just uh, deal with the question and come to a conclusion. That's how answers arise or doctrines arise. Think of your own personal exploration of Christianity. Did you naturally develop your own doctrine or did you do so once you had questions about something the preacher said or something you read or something said about Christianity that you didn't have an answer for? This is what motivates doctrines to rise and that is questions. Does this make common sense? Now you have to break this down for people. Because people who are outside the church, they just have not thought it through. Much like a lot of the post-apostolic fathers. They just hadn't thought through a lot of the questions because it hadn't been posed to them yet. So you have to ask them certain things. When we get to the question section, I'm going to break down a couple things that you can say to people. Okay? Um, 
It was during this area of Christianity, there wasn't a lot of challenges from within or without because of how young Christianity was. It hadn't really established itself and was only found in certain pockets of the world. Without a strong impulse propelling the church to defend or declare itself in the realm of authority, there is little evidence of reflection in doctoral matters. Second, you must understand the mindset of a second century church leader. So what was their mindset? The documents from the second century suggest several things. This is their mindset. So the writers of the uh, post-apostolic. One, they understood the Old Testament books to be authoritative though the exact number of books in that canon is unclear. Okay? They understood them to be authoritative. Two, there is complete silence as to whether the New Testament books held the same weight as the Old Testament. The apostolic books were highly regarded, though, and used. So they did not know, okay, are we considering this the same as Old Testament yet? Are we supposed to hold them on the same level? Of the 27 books of the New Testament, the fathers alluded to 19 of them. So by this point, 19 books of the New Testament were being quoted in their own writings by the church fathers. So there are 19 books. The post-apostolic fathers quoted them or referenced them in their own writings. Okay? 19 of the 27 books. Did you know there's 27 books in the New Testament? Now you know. Okay? Feel like a CBS ad. Dun, dun, dun. Now you know. Okay, here's the next one on the blank. The earliest church, the earliest fathers of the church did not have a cause that motivated them to reflect on the extent of authority. The issue was simply not raised. No one sat there thinking, I wonder if this is the same as the authority of the Old Testament. No one was asking those questions. Okay? Also in their mindset was this, and this is so much different than today. So this is hard for you to get your mind around. Okay? The fathers considered tradition, tradition to be authoritative. Tradition being the oral articulation of the gospel. In this sense, tradition and scripture, though in different forms of communication, are the same. Both the sacred writings and the word of mouth communication of the Christian message were the word of God. Okay? And this is one of the biggest things I want you to grasp tonight. It's the next fill in the blank. And that is, the authority was not in the medium through which the message was communicated. The authority was the message communicated. Okay? It did not matter if it was a message on a YouTube video, or from a preacher, or from, you know, Origins, one of his tweets, um, or from a radio program, or from... Um, you know, the KJV or the ESV or the NIV, it did not matter the medium. What was important was the message. How many interdenominational fights would be squelched if we held to that today? The authority was not the medium through which the message was communicated. The authority was the message communicated. Does that make sense? So that's why they weren't having questions on authority. And also, if you know anything about the Catholic Church, they still hold to this. They still hold scripture to be authoritative and the uh, actual communicators of it, so the priests, to be authoritative as well. That's why what the Pope says is literally doctrine. Um, Along with written word and oral word, the bishops was the faithful witness to the gospel. And this makes sense in an oral culture where literacy rates are about 10%. You have to trust the messengers if you yourself cannot read the message. Okay? So that's the time of post-apostolic era. 
Now let's move to the time of the apologists. The need to defend the church arose. It was because of the heretics, this is your next one on the blank, it was because of the heretics in particular that the issue of authority arose of an importance. If you're going to defend apostolic Christianity, what exactly was that Christianity? Which writings were in and out? As the church expanded throughout the Roman Empire in the 2nd century, particularly after the Jewish failed rebellion in 130 AD, Christianity was no longer perceived as a Jewish sect. It was viewed as a powerful movement. And Christianity at this time faced three different factions. You can write this in the notes section underneath. The first one is the state, namely Rome. They were not fans of Christ. The critiques from false religions. And the usurpers within their ranks. We see this today, not as much in America, but I mean, the state attacks Christianity in the Middle East all the time. Critiques from false religions. Uh, Suddenly, other religions had to take notice of Christianity. Let's be real. You're not going to hear the church respond um, to a uh, new religion that was founded in the Appalachian Mountains three years ago. Like, no church is like, okay, we need to take a doctrinal stand against these people. Because they're too small. Well, that's how people viewed Christianity until this period. So they're just too small. Why even bother critiquing them? Okay? And then usurpers within its ranks. These are people, mostly Gnostics, that are bringing in other philosophies and ideas that are unbiblical, and then trying to merge them together. Um, I did not keep this in my notes, so I'm going a little off script, so I apologize. But you need to understand this about Rome. Rome had gods. Many of you have read certain books that have them littered throughout. Okay? Um, Percy Jackson series, stuff like that. Okay? Um, In Rome... They worshipped these gods as state gods, but it was okay to have side gods, okay? Because the Roman Empire was so vast. So if you were a Roman, but you also wanted to worship some Egyptian and African gods because you were living in Africa, Rome was like, cool, go for it. As long as you're going to occasionally drop a dime in Zeus's back pocket, I'm okay. Well, Jupiter at that time. Jupiter's back pocket, I'm okay with it. So they had no problem with a mixing of religion. And that's why they had so much tension with the Jews for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Because Romans were like, okay, dude, just chill. We're all part of the same party, okay? Let's just mix it together. We'll put our temple next to yours. You have the, um, a Roman takeover of Jerusalem in about 100 BC where they took all the stuff out of the temple and put in their deity. And that started a rebellion. Um, the reason that started a rebellion is because the Jews were the only ones that were like, no, one God. That's it. That's all we worship. But they were the real oddballs, as you guys and Christians in the United States are becoming the real oddballs for only holding to one way. Okay? So that's why it was such a big deal. Well, you have people, now Romans, now Christians, who are like, well, can we mix them again? Like, then everyone's just happy. So, that's why this was such an issue. And so we had to make clear 
line delineations of what was Christianity and what was not. Because people were trying to mix what was not supposed to be. Okay? The most prominent opponent was the religion of Gnosticism, which is a blend of Eastern ideologies, Platonic philosophy, those are big words, I apologize, and some Christian principles. Uh, Platonism still plagues the church today. It's this dualness that you are body and spirit, and the body is the flesh, and that's evil. And the spirit is good. That's who you should be following. It's this idea that we're constantly battling two fleshes. You're battling your flesh and the your flesh and your and the spirit are constantly in battle for your soul. No, that's unbiblical. It never talks about that in the Bible. It talks about you being a new creation, being made new, and you following the spirit of God. Does your flesh still tempt you? Absolutely. But it's not this dual, dualistic yin yang. <coughs> Constantly battling. That's why to the to a Gnostic, the idea of Jesus rising from the dead and having a physical body was appalling. That's where that idea came in. That well, Jesus when he rose from the dead was just a ghost. He was just Casper. That's Gnosticism. That's bled in because the body is is wrong. To a Gnostic, heaven would be us floating. Okay, there would be no flesh. A very Nirvana. Ooh. That one episode of The Simpsons, um, which none of you watch anymore. Gnostics claimed to possess unwritten apostolic traditions, as well as an array of written sources to verify their teachings. This is the next fill in the blank. The potent threat posed by Gnostic teachers forced the church to think through the issue of written and oral sources. And inside the church, two prominent teachers arose. The first one's called Marconianism, and the second one's called Montanism. Marconianism, Montanism. Marconian, Monty. Okay? Marconianism, named after its leader, Marcion, was influenced by Gnostic dualism, that idea of spirit and flesh and we're at war and one is bad and one is good. And he believed the Old Testament and Paul's letters were irreconcilable. He rejected Jewish writings, including the whole New Test- Old Testament, and revised Luke's gospel while elevating the works of Paul. So he said, okay, we're just throwing out everything prior to Jesus. Okay? And we're going to change some things in Luke's to make it fit ours better. Okay? Montanius advanced a prophetic authority outside the Old Testament apostolic writings. An idea of a continuous and ongoing revelation from God. Sound familiar? It's because of what we hold to today. This idea that it's a continuous and ongoing revelation from God now that's closed in our canon. Okay? Because of these threats, a line of demarcation was drawn around the first century writings. What I mean was, because of these threats, they said anything prior to 100 AD, that's what we're including. Any other writings outside of it that say opposite, we're not including those. Okay? Um. These were, they believed to be authentic revelations. The bishops of the second century began to assemble a list of apostolic writings, recognizing that they alone should be read in church. Should be noted that they followed the same Hebrew canon, 39 books we do today. So at this point, they have the 39 books of the Old Testament. These are 39 we believe to be canon. Um, and the first list we have is known as the Maraturian canon, named after the 18th century archaeologist who found it, and it's dated to the 2nd century. And this is the next first list of the canon 
Um, late second century, so you're looking at, let's say, 190. Okay. Um, and this is where the list is. Uh, it was clear by the late 2nd century that the writings of the apostles were elevated to the level of the Old Testament. Although Marturian did not include 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st John, Hebrews, and James. The later two, because of the influence of Marconianism and the 3rd century Syriac version of the apostolic writings, does not contain revelation. So we have some books in the New Testament that people are still arguing over. Okay, Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyons in Gaul. Where's Gaul? Who's a good history major? France. France. That's where Mary Magdalene took her baby. Um, was a prolific writer and alluded to all apostolic writings except Philemon, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Revelation. Origen made a list of disputed books that included Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, June, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, and the Gospel of Hebrews. The point is, and this is your next fill in the blank, the point is, by the end of the 2nd century into the 3rd century, a canon of scripture began to emerge. So sometime between the 2nd and 3rd century, canon began to Why is this impressive? We're going to touch on this in a second, a little bit while. But while the spread of thousands of miles with little communications, the different churches were able to define a core set of books that they constituted as canon. Again, thousands of miles, little communication, the different churches were able to define a core set of books that constituted as canon. Tradition was still highly valued. Tradition and scripture were equated because early church leaders saw a strict conformity between them. The apologists believed the scriptures were in the word of God. Okay? That's the apologists. I'm giving you a broad overview. We could teach this as a whole seminary class. I'm not going to do that to you. I'll give you tons of books if you want to know more. So time, theologians. It wasn't until the time of theologians when Christianity became an accepted religion that bishops and church leaders could travel freely and real uniformity came to the church. During this period, great strides were made in establishing church doctrine to combat false religions that tried to associate themselves with Christianity. Athanasius in 366 and 367 was the first to provide an official list of the books of canon. And that is the early history of the New Testament and how we got it. Okay? We're going to break down a lot of questions. There's nine, I think. Um, and this is going to answer, I think, a lot of the questions you might have from just looking at the stars. So we've wrestled in on the stars. Now let's go back to the constellation as a whole and examine it and make sure that there's actually gas behind those balls of flames. Okay? So, question one. Why have a New Testament at all? Why have a New Testament at all? Is the New Testament something that was originally intended, or was the Bible an afterthought? You ever thought about that? Is the New Testament something that was originally intended, or intrinsic, or was the Bible an afterthought? Think about this. Christianity comes out of Judaism. 
or a people known as the people of the book. They were known by that to everyone else in the area. They were one of the few religions to hold a sacred group of writings that were passed around and studied no matter where the Jews were. If they were in Rome, if they were in Alexandria, if they were in one of their other colonies, they all had the same scriptures that they studied and looked at and looked to for guidance. Jews were also one of the only religions that was exclusive. I touched on this later. To be a Jew meant to worship Jehovah as God, not Zeus and Jehovah, not Jupiter and Jehovah, not Ra and Jehovah, not Baal and Jehovah. It was exclusive. The Roman Empire allowed you to have your own gods outside of their gods. The friction between Rome and Jerusalem was that Jerusalem constantly said, No, there is only ours. We won't take yours. Sorry. So if Christianity is a completion of Judaism, a people of what? The book. It logically follows that Christians too would be people of the book. The New Testament completes an unfinished Old Testament. Everyone knew this. Everyone was waiting for God to complete his story. So it seems like Christians would naturally see Christ as the final part. You ever read the last couple books of the New Testament? It's just kind of... It's just that. Just kind of like that, what, what just happened? Did the curtain go down? Am I supposed to go get popcorn at intermission? Like, we're left with this tension. And this is the other part. Both Judaism and Christianity were covenantal in mindset. Covenantal mindset was a heavy emphasis on written documents. It seems documents are born naturally out of it. If Christ says he made a new covenant, which he did at the Last Supper, then the early church should be expecting new written documents. Okay? Question two. While the core of the canon is in place, why should we trust or include the peripheral books? Remember I was talking about how early on in the second century there were a bunch of books that weren't included in the periph. They were in the core. They were kind of peripheral books. You've read a lot of them. Hebrews, Revelation, the mini Johns. That's what I call them, mini Johns. Alright? You have a bunch of these Jude. How do we include them? So people love disputes so they love to camp on these books all day but what is just as important is the fact that so many people agreed on the core books we forget that well we have these eight books that we're not quite sure of yeah but we have 19 that we're like yeah okay these are good i know we want to camp out all day on the potential problem but let's be impressed with the fact that thousands of miles apart with little to no communication. Because remember, if you profess to be a Christian and you walk along the Roman Empire, people kill you at this time. Okay? There's no email. There's no text. Okay? Um, tons of people have disagreements and we should flesh those out. But when so many are in agreement, we should take that to mean that what they are agreeing on is just as important, if not more important, than the other documents in question. Yes, some were peripheral, but eventually they were included. Why? So these are the four reasons they were included. The peripheral books. The first thing is an early date. We can trace them back before this. Okay? They introduce... 20% time. Nope. No new doctrine. No new doctrine. 
They can trace loosely back to author. Internally authoritative. Internally authoritative. We will get to why all the above reasons if the opposite is probably a forgery in a second. Okay? So those are the main reasons we include them. Question three. Why did it take so long for certain books to be accepted? So if you have these books on the periphery, why did it take so long for them to be accepted? The date thing tends to stick with people. If it was accepted late, somehow it's less valid. The following is a silly analogy, but I think it works. Okay? It's a really, really silly analogy. Okay? Um, because people think that if someone came late to the party, they shouldn't be accepted. Okay? Would any of these give you pause to date somebody? Okay, Zach, pay attention. Would any of these give you pause to date somebody? I know you're in the market. Okay? Yeah, that's not your He's taken. Okay? So here's a silly analogy. Would any of these give you pause to date somebody? By the way, these should give you pause, but ultimately they should be judged on their own merits. Okay? This is the first. They previously dated a guy or girl that was crazy. In the case of some of these books, they were used by Gnostics. So it gave people pause before they accepted it. If they were using it, was it guilty by association? Does that make sense? Okay. You meet somebody and you're like, man, you're really nice. You dated who? Are you nuts? Okay? It should give you pause. Okay? Does that make sense? Good. Two, you've never heard of them. They've just showed up and they look good. It's that transfer student that sits down in class and you immediately send up a silent praise. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. They are fine. Okay? You're sending up, yeah, you're just like, whoo! Okay. <laughs> I love Baltimore. Thank you for sending him Baltimore. Okay? But you don't know them from Adam. You have to remember the transmission of data was as fast as a horse. That's how fast data transmitted back then. And books were written from Rome to Babylon. First and second Peter. So it could have literally been a generation before someone got a copy. Then at least another generation to make sure it was legit. And there were tons of forgery gospels going around. So making sure they were legit took a lot of time. Does that make sense? Am I saying not to date that person? No. But you've got to get to know them and make sure that they hadn't dated crazy before. Okay? To begin to make a, de a decision. Does that make sense? It's a silly analogy, but I think it follows. Okay? So, first tactic. Okay? Um... Because I talked about the distance, First and Second Peter, were in Babylon. Okay, that's where they were written. So for someone in Rome to be like, I've never heard of this before. Who are you? Is this legit? It's like, let's say 130, 140 before they even get the book. And so they got to be like, okay, can 
I send a letter to someone back there. Tell me, is this for real? So they send a letter. The first messenger dies in transit because he's a Christian. So they send the second one. And, you know, okay, he gets there. And then on the way back, he dies. You know, you're like, it took a while for them to verify things. We forget this. We text somebody now. And the moment it says red, you're like, you better respond to me right now. I'm not dealing with your crap. I got 20 seconds here. I'm going to turn on another Netflix show. They better respond to me. That's how our heart responds, okay? Because we're used to instantaneous return on question. And travel up until 200 years ago was as fast as a horse. If you wanted to send a letter by horse and you lived in New York and you wanted it to go all the way to California, the fastest thing on the Pony Express took 29 days for them to get the letter. So you got to wait at minimum two months if the weather is phenomenal for you to get your information back. It's the same way in Rome, okay? Except they're trying to kill you in between Rome and Babylon, okay? You can't do this. You can't ride. This is the Christian Postal Service. Please don't kill me, okay? They're going to they're gonna kill you, okay? So you have to deal with travel of information. So tactic one. The fact is, when you come across someone who doubts the legitimacy of, let's say, First and Second Peter, this is a great question to ask them. And that is simply turning their doubt on them. Because you're going to be like, well, I just, I don't believe those books should be included. Okay? I think I put it on your sheet. If God decided to deliver these books through normal historical channels... Not on a golden tablet from heaven. What should we expect the acceptance problem to look like? It's a great question to ask. If God decided to deliver these books through normal historical channels, what should we expect the acceptance problem to look like? It's a great question to ask somebody. Because most people have not even thought about it. Because they assume, especially if they're outside the church, that it was literally some guy who was taken possession of... And he wrote a long letter real quick. And suddenly that's, you know, now suddenly the pen was gold writing. Like, no. Normal historical means of writing. You would have geographical problems. You would have when they were written problems. And you'd have to battle heresy. The shocking thing, and this is the big thing with this issue. The shocking thing is not that they would take a while. The shocking thing is how quickly the core was so quickly accepted. That's the shocking thing. I mean, with everything going against them, they had a set core, and then by 300, what did I say? 300 something. Let's say 300 something. They had the, all of the books all together. That's incredible. I think that's hard for people in the 21st century to wrap their minds around. Because they're like, why didn't they just send an email? Okay? At Jesus dot, dot God, you know? <laughs> so, we shouldn't expect it to be perfectly fitted. God works through normal historical channels. Everyone say normal, normal. historical, historical. Channels. channels. I think we need to wrestle with that. Because I think a lot of our expectations are that they shouldn't go through normal historical channels. Yes, they should. That's how God has worked 
since Genesis, normal historical channels. It's not a holy book given on a golden tablet in which we copy it. Okay? The question, the next one, question four, comes up at Easter on the History Channel, so be ready for it. I bang my head against the floor every... I'm on the floor because I'm playing with my kids every time I hear it. Question four. What about these lost Gospels? What about these lost Gospels, AJ? Lost Gospels? You're already assuming they belong in canon. Just by the definition, lost scripture. You're assuming you, they have a built-in terminology with their own assumption. You can't call them lost scripture. That's the question. Are they scripture? When talking about apocryphal books, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, all of them were written in the 2nd century or later. None of them have any credibility to be written by an apostle or an eyewitness. None of that is true about the canonical Gospels. All the canonical Gospels are from the first century. Maybe the early Christians were onto something if no one listed them as valid. No one. Question five. What about the useful ones? Uh, Shepherds of Hermits, uh, Shepherd of Hermits, widely read, extremely useful. In spite of all of its popularity, it never had much of a chance of being in canon. Christians realized the book was written late, so even though they liked it, it couldn't be apostolic. Um, I've read the book of Clement, Irenaeus, Origen. I don't agree with all they've written, but I'm going to. But if you're going to be well-read in terms of church history and development of theology, I think it's a good place to start. Okay, if you have a Kindle, you can download PDF of these books for free. Okay, They're, it's good to read, especially some of these church fathers, because they quote scripture all the time. Like, it's like reading, you know, any of these books that you have on the shelf out there, where they're commentating on scripture. Very similar. They have their, you know, uh, desiring God type, uh, you know, letters that were floating around. So they're not bad books. They're just not canon. Does that make sense? So I want to make that clear, too. Like, I don't think we should bash on the Apocrypha. This is what they read at the time, and what... uh, what answers were they were deriving from those texts? Um, the question we have to ask, as we do all te- texts of canon, are, are they valid? Should they be considered as canon? But again, they're not, they're not bad books. Um, you know, 90 minutes in heaven isn't included in that, but that's okay. So. Or uh, the heaven is for real, whatever the little lying child said. Okay, so did the apostles know they were writing scripture? It's a good question, because clearly none of you know the right answer for sure. Okay? So it's a good question. Modern people are going to say no because of preconceived ideas. We're going to talk about tactics of discussion in a couple of weeks, but one tactic is called what's the Columbo tactic. The fact is, people make claims all the time, and they can't back it up. So when someone says, Paul didn't even know he was writing scripture, you simply ask, what makes you say that? You don't have to defend that statement. They have to defend that statement. There's a difference between a challenge and an assertion. Speaking of Paul, I definitely think he did. He writes with authority. He believes he is Christ's mouthpiece. He says that. Galatians 1, he talks about writing to speak for Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says, I write you the words of the Lord. You don't talk that way and think you're writing good advice. They knew 
they were writing about the authority of Christ. So, Second Peter three fifteen and sixteen, and count the patience as our Lord, uh, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So, Peter's equating Paul with Jesus, as he does all his letters when he speaks in them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, so as they do the other scriptures. So he's putting Paul on the same level as the other scriptures. Okay. Um, Question seven. The books are anonymous. Is it reasonable to believe that the four names of the gospels actually wrote them? Yeah. So if they're written anonymously, is it fair? So first, they're first century books. Proximity to time puts them in play. It puts the original authors in play. They're the only gospel books in play. So of all the gospels, they're the only four in play that were in the first century. So at least time-wise, it works. There was a very early patristic tradition. It's uniform and widely spread. You can argue that they were lied to, the church fathers. You can argue they were lied to. Um, But who has a better shot of knowing? Me or Irenaeus? God, thank you. Irenaeus thought John wrote the Gospel of John. Irenaeus got his knowledge from Polycarp, who knew John personally. We can argue Irenaeus is wrong, but that's a tough pill to swallow. Gospel titles. The Gospel titles are quite early. Some scholars believe they were there from the start. They were definitely there by the end of the first century. They can't be added late and be uniformly and consistently applied by all the churches. If they were added early, their credibility goes up immensely. Okay? Fact is, we've said it earlier when we talked about it last week. We don't have any manuscripts from the first century. So we don't know if they put their John Hancock on it. Okay, we don't. Um, but if there was early church tradition, wide church tradition, so it was not just the church followers in Rome that believed this, but the ones in Alexandria and Gaul and Babylon, then it makes more sense. Okay, and they all held to it. Question eight. There are early Christian forgeries. This is true. Gospel of Thomas, nothing to do with the Apostle Thomas. Three Corinthians, not written by Paul or Donald Trump. We have several more examples. Early Christians widely condemned these. They didn't think this was a good thing. They fought hard against these. The question is, did any of them make it into the New Testament? Remember the hesitancy issue brought up earlier by the dating analogy. Okay? They had hesitancy with these books. So here's the example, the Second Peter controversy. At the end of the day, it was fully and widely adopted. Again, this is significant. People find disunity significant, but why don't they find unity significant? Lack of any clear heretical agenda? There was none in it. What's the point of forging its book if everything it says has already been said? It's a good question to ask. Okay. Internal evidence of the book does not give any evidence of being late. No second century trends, theology, or issues. So, well, unless someone's forging a book that has nothing new and they're trying to be accurate to date for no reason, those are the two options. Okay? If you want to believe the first, second one, go for it. Okay? Don't read Second Peter. Think you're silly, though. Okay? Question nine. How literate would the earliest Christians have been? About 10% of the population could read or write, just like everyone else. 
Why was Christianity a religion of the documents? One, you can interact with written documents without reading or writing at all. Public reading was how most people learned. How do we public read once a week? Sermon. Means that people got scripture through different means. Remember what, I, what is more important, the medium or the message? Message. Message. That's why authority was held on par back then. Because the message was more important than how it was being delivered. Thanks for listening to the Yak Podcast. I hope you enjoy our uh, series on apologetics. If you want more information on Yak, you can visit us at cccfrisco.org. I hope you'll join us again soon.